When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This Get Booked episode is sponsored in part by Libro FM. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, and you can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as the larger audiobook companies out there, but you'll be part of a different story, one that supports community. And all you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. So so if you already love audiobooks and don't know what to check out next, you can find recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, which are your local booksellers. And in June, Libro FM launched their Kids Club and YA Club, which offers select audiobooks priced under $10 each as well as their summer listening challenge. And each person who finishes will get free audiobook credit and a chance to win free audiobooks for a year if you complete the challenge extra credit. So listeners of Get Booked can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month when you go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code BR3. And with each listen, you can take pride in knowing you're supporting local bookstores. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 189, and we are recording on July 16th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Amanda Nelson, who is back from vacation, and we are coming <laughs> to you from Book Riot. Uh, hello. <laughs> hello. Welcome back. Books exist still in this world. <laughs> Did you not do much reading on your vacation? I did. Well, I read one. I read um, The Chilling Effect, the Valerie Valdez book that comes oh, yeah. out I think, in September. I read that like in one sitting at the lake. It's amazing. If you're still looking for a read-alike to Long uh, Long Ways, Small Angry Planet, oh my gosh, the Becky Chambers, then this is, this is, this is, it's like the book is like a firefly were captained by a Latinx woman. Interesting. It's amazing. It's so much fun. They're psychic cats. I love it. Anyway, it was great. I read it in a sitting, as you can tell. I'm probably going to talk about this like a million times on this podcast. How are you? Did you have a good week while I was gone? I am good. Yeah, I had a very good week. Well, let's see. Let's talk about how this show works, shall we? This, as I said at the top, is a personalized reading recommendation show, which means you send us in questions and we do our best to find the right book for you. It can be for you personally, for your own specific reading taste. It can be for your book club or a present for a friend or a relative. Maybe you're traveling somewhere and want to read something from that area. All of these and more, we will do our best to answer. If you have a time-sensitive request, please mention that at the top of the form that's on the site for every episode. Or you can email us your questions, getbookedatbookriot.com, and you can put time sensitive in the subject line and then let us know when you're hoping to have a response by. If we don't think we'll get to it on air, we might send you an email response, so keep an eye out for those. 
And we do have some feedback from listeners for further recommendations for previous questions asked. The first is from Miranda, who has a pick for the person who wanted books where a new fun person comes into a relationship dynamic and the person chooses to stay with their partner. And they recommend Sex with Shakespeare by Jillian Keenan says this exact dynamic plays out. And I think there's a lot in there about how to deal with those temptations and how to have a constructive conversation about it. And then Jessica has a pick for the person who wanted progressive Christianity books, Disunity in Christ by Christina Cleveland. Slightly more academic, but a really great examination of how our cultures get replicated at church. Could be good for someone wanting to do more activism from within the church. Interesting. And our last piece of feedback is from Jenna, who has a multi-generational family stories pick, Oral History by Lee Smith. It's set in Appalachia, and even though I last read it many years ago, I think of it often. Awesome. All right, let's see. So Amanda, will you read us our first question and tell us about our first sponsor? Sure. Okay. Uh, Let's see if I remember how to do this. (laughs) Let's see if I remember how to read. (laughs) Our first question is from Louisa, who says, I will be traveling to Iran this year and would love any book recommendations, either fiction or nonfiction set in the country. I really enjoyed Persepolis, but no comic books, please. Okay, before we get to that, we are going to talk about our first sponsor, which is, what is it? I don't know. The Lightest Object in the Universe by Kimmy Eisel, um, which is being blurred. I love this so much, which is being blurbed as Cold Mountain meets Station Eleven. Cold Mountain meets right? Station Eleven. I, have to, I had to like, what? <laughs> I had to like sit on it. Um, it does not take place during the Civil War. It is modern times, but it is about a dude like on a quest to find his love. So it's about a man named Carson. Um, at the end times, you know, like the electrical grid has gone down, the global economy has collapsed, and he is on a desperate, desperate trek from the East Coast to the West Coast to find the woman he loves named Beatrix. And like, how do you do that with no modern means of communication and several thousand miles between you? So it's a moving and hopeful story about resilience and adaptation and a testament to the power of community. Also, lip balm, I love this, lip balm really heavily factors into the novel. So the author worked with Kumba Maid to create a limited edition run of lip balm, and it's called Apocalypsticks. Ayo. Just... Marry me. Like, that's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> also, I have said so many times, maybe not on this podcast, but like to my friends at parties, because I'm boring at parties, that the thing that would, that like, lip chapstick is going to be currency at the end of day. <laughs> like, chapstick and tampons. That's, those are going to be the things that people, it's not going to be oil. It's going to be chapstick and tampons and coffee. This is, these are, mm. these are my feelings. So the fact that she, like, went out and made post apocalyptic, I love it. It's so good. Anyway, go check that out. The Lightest Object in the Universe by Kimmy Eisel. Thank you for sponsoring this show. All right, I'm going to keep going. So, book set in Iran. I'm cheating here. I'm cheating. I mean, it's set in Iran, but it's the third book in a series. <laughs> I picked Among the Ruins by Azma Zehanat Khan. This is the third book in her Rachel Getty and Essa Katak mystery, like procedural mystery series. But I picked it anyway because it's so good. It is so, like, I don't know, 101 level about modern Iranian life. So I will say I do think that you need to at least have read the first book in the series, probably not the second, um, unless you want, like, background information about why Essa is in Iran, but you don't necessarily need it. So I'm actually giving you, like, a homework of three books here. And I'm sorry, but it was a really good selection for this question. Um, So the main character's name is Essa. He is a community police detective who works in Canada. His family is from Iran. And uh, after the events of book two, he's decided to go home 
to like reconnect with his cultural heritage, take a very long, much needed vacation. But while he's there, he's approached by a Canadian government agent asking him to like investigate the death of a Canadian Iranian filmmaker who was murdered in a really big prison where they where Iran is keeping political prisoners. So he finds himself really quickly like wrapped up in Iran's political scene. He's under surveillance. And then eventually the trail leads back to her family, to the, the filmmaker's family that's living in Canada. So he calls his partner, Rachel Getty, to help him, who is still in Canada, to help him solve it. And the two of them get super embroiled in this conspiracy that's linked to the Shah of Iran and to a series of murders of some of Iran's uh, famous political dissidents that go back several decades. There's letters. They, like, travel all over the country. They go to the Royal Ontario Museum. There's, like, a smuggling ring on the Caspian Sea that they disrupt. So much is going on here. But the reason why I picked this is because if you don't really know much about Iranian history, this will catch you up over, over the last, like, 50 years of Iranian history. And um, as says, in the first, like, third of the book, he's just kind of there, like being a tourist or trying to be a tourist, um, visiting cultural heritage sites and eating the food and listening to music and meeting, you know, people who live there and talking to all the friends of his family and things like that. And so it's it's a really interesting, like, kind of tourism novel for about 40 pages until all the banana stuff starts happening. But the banana stuff is super educational about Iranian culture and history. So loved it. So that's Among the Ruins by Ausma Zehanat Khan. She's so good. She's just the best. I picked a sort of classic nonfiction that I worry that people have forgotten about because I don't see it getting talked about as much anymore, which granted it came out in 2003. So that's been a minute. But still, I picked Reading Lolita in Tehran by Azar Nafizi. And this is if you have not heard about it, which again, <laughs> I worry, I worry. Uh, <laughs> Azar Nafizi was teaching literature in Iran uh, during, you know, the the raids and the fundamentalist movement and all of these things. And so she would get her seven most committed female students together sort of in secret to read Western classics, which otherwise were forbidden. And this is her memoir about what it was like to teach, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald in Tehran to hijabi students who were terrified of being hauled in by the morality police and, you know, Jane Austen and Henry James. And like, what do you what are those conversations like outside of, you know, the U.S. culture and in a culture like Iran? And then also, of course, what these women were facing and why Nafizi chose to do this uh, and all of these different interconnected issues. But I, the thing I love about Nafizi's writing is that that especially as a Westerner myself, like she's offering you a way into reading about very different people's lives through the commonality of literature, which is kind of like in my like, I don't know if this is a little woo, but like that's what literature is for, right? Is uh, to connect uh -huh. people. And I love that as a lens in this as a as a lens in this memoir. So it gives me a lot of feelings, clearly, to talk about this book. Um, and I'm not saying that, like, you know, Nafizi is perfect or that I agree with everything she says forever. Like, obviously not. That's not true of anybody. But I think this is a really valuable look both at Iranian culture and also at literature and the power of literature and how we use it. Uh, and so, yes, so that's why I picked it. So that's Reading Lolita in Tehran by Azar Nafizi.
Okay, our next question is from Courtney, who says, My mom has not read a book in over 20 years because her job is bananas. The only thing she reads are the Journal of Accountancy, because it's related to her job, and Time Magazine for fun, but I'm pretty sure she only looks at the pictures. (laughs) She will be retiring next year and mentioned that she wants to try to read for fun. Myself, my brother, and her two retired sisters are all voracious readers, and I think she feels a little bit left out. She currently watches a lot of TV. She watches things like This Is Us, Life in Pieces, and the Hallmark Channel. Could you help recommend some books that might help her transition from a TV couch potato to a book couch potato? P.S. I love that. That's amazing. (laughs) Yes, we absolutely can. I'm just going to keep going. I picked The Kitchens of the Great Midwest by J. Ryan Straddle for you. And I think I feel really good about this one. (laughs) I feel like I do. I feel really, really good about this pick. I think it has a lot in common with the things that she's watching. It's very hard heartwarming. It's also kind of bittersweet. It is about a young woman named Eva Thorvald, who, let's see, how to not be too spoilery. <laughs> but a lot of things are summed up, like there are things summed up in the description of this book that I wouldn't have talked about. So who knows? Um, she, the book takes place over the like first 20 some years of her life. And all of the characters in it weave in and out of her life in different ways. Um, and it opens with her parents meeting and falling in love. And then her mother decides to leave. And then her life unfolds from there. And each chapter, you only actually get one chapter, I think, from Eva's perspective. The rest of them are from other people who are interacting with her in various ways. And it's so fascinating because you're dipping in and out of these people's lives at very specific moments in time. And you don't get like sometimes the chapter, their chapter will end in the middle of a really intense moment. And then it skips to a new person and you're like, what happened? But it all comes together kind of beautifully at the end. And each chapter, it's called Kitchens of the Great Midwest because Ava grows up to be a cook. And they, it is really looking at the food of the Midwest, which is very influenced by Scandinavian culture. So like lutefisk is a big thing in the first chapter. And like, you know, the bars, like the cookie bars that you make to bring to a church potluck figure in, things like that. And then also some fancier food stuff comes up at various times. And it's so, it is, like I said, it's really heartwarming. It's really bittersweet. Like not everything works out perfectly. And some characters make choices and you're like, ugh. But it's a really interesting and complex character story. And it's so readable. Like you just start reading it and you just keep going. And the next thing you know, it's three hours later. And you're like, oh, I have spent a bunch of time in this book and I didn't even notice. I will say, I don't know how sensitive your mom is to language. And there's one character in particular who is very deliberately, she's in like her college rebellion years, and she's very deliberately trying to shock everyone around her. So there's a lot of language in in a couple of the chapters. But it's, again, like, it's sort of, it's there because she's trying to do a thing. So... Hopefully that won't bother her too much. And it's pretty limited. Um, But yeah, so that's my pick. Kitchens of the Great Midwest by J. Ryan Strabble. Okay, I picked The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid for this question because This Is Us and Life in Pieces and the Hallmark Channel, I feel like, are really soap operas about family life. And that's exactly what The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo is, with an added bonus of a bit of a mystery, a nonviolent mystery. Um, so that could scratch her like procedural itch without any kind of 
violence that you need to read about. Um, so obviously, it's about Evelyn Hugo, who is an aging starlet. I think when the book opens, she's either she's in her 70s or 80s. I don't remember. Um, and she is kind of obviously mo- modeled on Elizabeth Taylor. She has seven husbands, has had been married seven times in her life, and is currently living by herself. Her last husband has passed away. Uh, and Kind of, she's kind of reclusive, like she's not giving interviews, she's not doing any of that. Um, and then she reaches out to a journalist named Monique Grant, who is kind of an unknown. She and her own life, Monique's own life is falling apart. Her husband has just left her. Her professional life is sort of bottomed out. She's not going anywhere. So why, you know, most famous and beautiful woman in the world reaches out to her to do an exclusive um, story is very confusing. And that is really the heart of the mystery. So she goes to Evelyn's apartment. Monique goes to Evelyn's apartment, this like beautiful Manhattan penthouse. Um, and Evelyn tells her, actually, I don't want to do an interview, which was supposed to be about like a charity ball she's attending. What I want to do is tell you my life story and then give you exclusive rights to sell it. And of course, Monique is like, what? (laughs) That's like a bajillion dollar deal. You don't know who I am. What's going on here? Um, But she agrees to do it because it's a bajillion dollar deal. Uh, And so the rest of the book is Evelyn telling Monique her life story and how she came to be, you know, one of Hollywood's most famous actresses, how she came to have seven husbands. And at the real crux of the story is the first question that Monique asks her, which is, who was the real love of your life? And then you're kind of listening to Evelyn get to the point of that um, over her lifetime. It's really beautifully told. Also, if your mother's into audiobooks, I listen to it on audio and it's so good. Um, And the mystery of why Evelyn has tapped Monique to do this story really drives it. Like, there were no slow points in this book. And Evelyn is such a fascinating character because she makes a lot of choices that I think a lot of us would judge a a woman for making about, like, the way she uses her body to get ahead and the, the ways that she uses people to protect herself and her family and things like that. But The author writes her so well that, like, you're like, oh, you're a terrible person, and I'm rooting for you anyway. And, like, that, I think, is really masterful. So that's The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, very dishy Hollywood family drama by Taylor Jenkins Reid. I just love the word dishy. It's so dishy. It is. is. And I like saying it, too. It's a dishy. Yeah. Super fun. All right. Question three is from Rachel, who says, I'm scheduled to have surgery in August, and the recovery period is much longer than I expected, three to four weeks spent in bed. I would love some recommendations to help me pass the time and distract me from the fact that I'm in pain and stuck in my house. It would be even more excellent if the book was available in audio, so it will take me longer to read and I don't have to worry about carrying it. I'm open to pretty much any genre. Some of my favorite authors are Louise Erdrich, Karen Russell, Kazuo Ishiguro, Peter Heller, and Scott Hawkins. Okay, Jen, what you got? Okay. I have my latest obsession for you. (laughs) My Erdrich comp is Mod's Line by Margaret Verbal. She is uh, part Cherokee. She's an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. And this book, Mod's Line, is based on some of her family history. And it takes place in the late 1920s in eastern Oklahoma. And Maud, the main character, is living with her father and brother on one of the allotments that the Cherokee received when their land was, like, confiscated. Uh, and she has, like, a very simple life, right? They have cows and, you know, farming is the main industry of her community and they don't have running water or electricity yet so you know it's it's like a hard scrabble life and she knows it and it's just kind of normal and then a peddler like a literal like with a wagon and some horses and some stuff in the back comes to town 
And she sort of falls for him, but she's also a little bit embarrassed about her life because he's used to, you know, things like electricity and running water. Um, and there's some complications, of course, because there's a family feud going on between her family and then a neighboring white family. And, oh, this is where I give a trigger warning for a cow dies and a dog dies. And they're not particularly pleasant moments Mm. so just fyi um but it's it is it has that feel that erdrick is so good at in her historical fiction where you're looking at these lives although you're only getting Maud's point of view but you see the other people moving in and out of her life and it's such a specific feeling and her prose is so beautifully spare she tells everything in this really simple straightforward style that i just love it sucks me right in and like watching Maud's life unfold in front of you on the page, you're just like, what is she going to choose to do? Because she she comes up against some really intense choices. Even though her life is very simple, that doesn't mean that these choices aren't dramatic in their own way. So I, I think you will really love it. I love it. And it's Maud's Line by Margaret Verbal. Okay, I picked Amber Lowe by Laura Elena Donnelly, and it's the first book in a trilogy, and all three are out, and they're all available on audio, so you can just hunker down 30 hours of story, and you're going to want to because the first one ends on a cliffhanger, which I did not want to know when I read it, and it was so infuriating, <laughs> but you have been warned. You're just going to want to sit down and listen to all three. Okay, so Amber Lowe is a, it's kind of a fantasy-ish in as much as it takes place in a fantastical, not based in reality country universe um but it is a very 1930s spy thriller meets cabaret um and so the two main characters are cyril who is a spy in this 1930s not not actually germany but kind of basically berlin um city and his lover aristide who is the mc of a cabaret called the bumblebee uh he's the mc of the bumblebee he's also a smuggler and cyril is like pretending to not know that and they're just kind of like pretending their interests don't totally conflict with each other because they are in love even though they never admit it and all of this is happening like they're navigating the relationship and Cyril's navigating his job in the background of the one state party coming to power in Amberlo City and the one state party are Nazis like they are just kind of not even subtly Nazis Um, they're conservative really very socially conservative um, vision for the country involves uniting all four areas of this world under one big like you know, iron government. Um, and so Cyril is sent by his government to go on a mission to, you know, like investigate these people, this uh, one state party. And while he's there, his cover is blown. Um, and so he has to make a deal to work for the one state party in order to save his own life and to be able to smuggle Aristide out of the country because oh, there it's extremely homophobic. It's a socially conservative government. And then like everything just starts falling apart. There's just lies on deception on spycraft on disguises on who is that uh, just everything it, it gets it's not confusing because you're following several threads at once but it is complicated um and i love that about it because it's not so complicated that like when you're laying in bed not feeling well you're gonna be like what's happening but it's enough to keep you mentally engaged um so that you can continue following where everyone is going and who's double crossing who and why It's also super sexy. Like, it's a very sensual book, which is a little strange when you're reading a book about, like, the rise of the Nazis, metaphorically. But I just, I loved it so much. Also, Cordelia, she's a, not a main character, but she is a dancer at the B, and she works for Erstide as a runner and, like, a drug smuggler. And she's so, I don't even, just, like, this tough girl. She's amazing. Like, somebody plucked off the streets of 
Cockney England. She's a Dickensian orphan, basically. <laughs> and she like becomes this really, really street smart, brilliant spy. And every every character in this book is fascinating. All their motivations are so interesting. The world building is really great. And yeah, that's it. I it's you'll you're gonna wanna just read the whole thing when you're laying in bed. So yeah, that's Amber Lowe by Laura Elena Donnelly. I forgot to mention that Mod's line is in audio and ebook. Very easy to get a hold of. Okay. Our next question is from Brooke, who says, I'm reading Beyond Birds and Bees by Bonnie J. Ruff and realizing that the American expatriate compares parenting norms in their host country is a type of book I want to read more of. Beyond Birds and Bees looks at human sexuality through the lens of Dutch society. I also liked bringing up Babé's look at food in France and Actung Baby's exploration of independence in Germany. I like learning that something that can seem so strange to me at first, like allowing a child to walk to school alone or play outside naked, is a common practice somewhere, and the examination of backgrounds and the implications. I think they help me parent more thoughtfully. Do you know of others? I had to get help for this one because I have read almost none of these books, sorry. (laughs) But the contributors recommended one that looks so good to me. It's called There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather by Linda Okison McGurk. And she, while they're describing it as bringing up Bebe meets Last Child in the Woods, which is super interesting. Uh, She was born in Sweden and moves to small town Indiana with her American husband to start a family. And yeah, like lets her children play outside all year round, regardless of the weather. And like, you know, in Sweden, if you let a baby nap outside in freezing temperatures, it's not uncommon and also it's kind of recommended by physicians where like in the u.s that's gonna get you called like child services yeah it's (laughs) gonna get you arrested child services gonna get called and she was really startled to find that you know in preschool the kids are getting drilled with academic skills while in scandinavia the kids would be like climbing trees and catching frogs and learning to compost and so she is struggling with this and there's a you know clear culture clash and uh, she gets fined for letting her children play in a creek and like starts talking about this on her blog and is struggling to figure out like what's going to go on. So the book came out of that sort of key incident in her life. And apparently the Scandinavian philosophy is there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothes. And how can she like bring up her kids in America and not, you know, get fined and or arrested, um, but also give them, you know, the Scandinavian concepts and love of the outdoors and nature and all of those other things. Like, how can she do that? So that's what this book is about, which sounds like it's very much up your alley. It's also like, I'm very curious about this myself, because that's really interesting. Uh, So again, it's There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather by Linda Oakson McGurk. All right, I cheated. A little bit. (laughs) I cheated. I picked How to Raise Successful People by Esther Wojcicki who is a mother living in Silicon Valley. And my justification for this is Silicon Valley is another country entirely. (laughs) No one there is normal. One out of 11 people in Silicon Valley are billionaires. Like, this is not real life. But this book is the most helpful parenting book I have ever read, which shocked me. So Esther is an English teacher, like, raised very poor. Her parents were immigrants from mm, Poland, I think. And she was raised an Orthodox Jew and left that tradition uh, when she met her husband. Um, And her childhood was very hard, very, very poor. And she is pretty middle class for most of her life until I think her kids are like, in middle school. And then, you know, she lives in Silicon Valley. But she stays an English teacher forever. 
her kids, however, are the CEO of YouTube, the founder of 23andMe, and some kind of fancy, like super fancy doctor, like the chairman of a big, is it cardiac? I don't remember. Anyway, super fancy doctor, CEO of YouTube, founder of 23andMe. So obviously, they did some, and they're all women. And so she did something right, uh, you know, in raising these super successful people who are not Elon Musk. Like they're not, um, what am I trying to say? Sociopaths a little bit? Maybe. <laughs> they're like normal, like they're normal human beings. And so I was really interested in what she had to say about her process. And I went into the book expecting it to be like, well, I had 45 nannies and you know, hey, that's how you do it. Um, but it's nothing like that. Like she doesn't raise her, she did not raise her children with any of the strictures of what I would imagine wealthy people in a wealthy community would do. And her parenting philosophy is based on um, this acronym which seems really common sense. It's trick, trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. And again, that sounds like, well, of course, you you know, do all of those things with your kids. But her examples are like things that no one does. Like when her children are were like eight or nine, she would send them into – and she does this with her grandkids too. So it's not just like, well, you know, back in the 70s, it was safer. That's first of all statistically not true. And second of all, she's still doing it. Um, she would like send them into Target with a grocery list you know, eight or nine years old, like, I'm going to sit in the car and read this book, y'all go get this stuff. And she just trusted them to do that, you know, and like her, the ways that she taught them to be independent, the ways that she taught them to make decisions in collaboration with her and her husband, as opposed to like, the way that she and a lot of us were raised, which is the parents make the choices, the children kind of just then have to go do it, um, which is fine, but it doesn't help teach your children how to make big decisions, right? That teaches them how to obey other people's big decisions, which isn't always helpful. Um, so anyway, I changed a lot of the things that I was doing, especially around collaboration, like because I am a bit old fashioned as a parent. And I and you know, I'm a single mom. So it takes a lot of mental effort to collaborate with my kids. It's just easier to tell them to do something and expect them to do it. Um, but I altered a lot of that stuff after reading this book. And it's been really helpful. Like my household runs a lot more smoothly when my kids feel invested in what's going on. You're going to have to, but you are going to have to like get past some of her stories because she'll be like, and then I talked to my neighbor, Elon Musk's mother. And you're like, what's your life? You know, or she'll have some of her former students come in to talk about how she used some of these um, ideas in the classroom. And it's like Steve Jobs' daughter, you know, and it's just very odd. Um, but she's very down to earth. The book makes a lot of sense. I really liked it. So How to Raise Successful People by Esther Wojcicki. Fascinating. It's so good. It's so, I texted so many people when I was reading it, like, <laughs> especially after the Elon Musk thing. <laughs> right. Like, his mother is your nip. That's so bizarre, you know? Oh, it's like life on Mars. You're like, what is that? How does that work? James Franco is one of her former students and, like, makes an appearance a few times in the book. And I'm like, get, get him away from me. Ooh, I know. Weird. It's very, it's super, super weird. Well, um, okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Next sponsor. <laughs> yes, let's talk about our next sponsor. I'm excited about this one. It is The Stubborn Archivist by Yara Rodriguez Fowler, uh, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. This sounds great. It is for fans of Claire Louise Bennett and Sally Rooney. I know y'all are all reading <laughs> Sally Rooney because it feels like everybody in my life is reading that. Uh, so in other words, readers who love literary and accessible fiction that explores women's interior lives like Hello Wheelhouse. This is a debut novel about a young woman growing up between two disparate cultures and her search to find a singular identity for her herself. Uh, the young woman is growing up British Brazilian in South London and trying to figure out, you know, how do you 
negotiate who you are when your mother feels like she's from one place and you feel like you're from another place and you don't know how you fit in and people treat you like you don't fit in. And she is doing things like taking trips to Brazil, sometimes alone, sometimes with family to access a different side of herself and just really struggling to find herself through, you know, things like first love and loss, uh, trauma and healing, awakenings of sexuality and identity. So, you know, women figuring their stuff out. This is this is what it is. Very interesting. And the author, Yara Rodriguez Fowler, is only 25 years old. How dare. Uh, she is a very interesting sounding person. She became a trustee of Latin American Women's Aid, the only refuge run for and by Latin American women in the UK. She masterminded a Tinder chatbot that helped mobilize the youth vote in the British general election. Fascinating. And has a BA from Oxford and an MA from University University College, and she's written a book doing lots of things, clearly. So if that sounds interesting to you, again, that is The Stubborn Archivist by Yara Rodriguez Fowler, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Thanks for sponsoring the show. All right. Question five is from Stephanie, who says, I just left my job and I'm in a place where I'm feeling a lot of big feelings. I'm looking for some fiction I can completely lose myself in so I don't get bogged down in all of my emotions. I love all the queer YA, female-driven sci-fi, middle-grade fantasy adventure, to name a few. Recently loved books include Where the Crawdads Sing, uh, What If It's Us, Magic for Liars, Middle Game, This Is How It Always Is, uh, the Lunar Chronicles series, everything actually, by Marissa Meyer, uh, and A Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. I'm also open to graphic novels, and I'm currently loving slash am reading my way through Lumberjanes. Thanks in advance. Okay, I picked Sorcery of Thorns by Margaret Rogerson, which is just magical librarian and kissing. <laughs> magical librarians. Kissing. Um, it is queer. The boy in the boy. I I'm so confused about the ages of like young adult characters. Sometimes I think he's actually eighteen. So man, the male character in this book is bisexual. <laughs> Whatever. Um, the the main character's name is Elizabeth. She is an orphan who is raised in one of the universe. Ostermere is the name of this universe. Um, great libraries, and these libraries house you know like. A few normal books, but mostly magical books. And they're called Grimoires. All of these books have like magical kind of personalities almost. Uh, they're created by sorcerers uh, who have, you know, infused them with magic. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so great. Like some of them that are made with like human skin and teeth and things like that can do things that are really dangerous. And so the job of the librarians is not just to, you know, check books in, check books out to people who are doing research, but also to like wear armor, carry swords, defend the realm against these magical bad grimoires that they keep in the vault of the library. Um, because if they're provoked, they can transform themselves into these like big monsters that can do a lot of damage. Um, so, And those are called wardens, these librarians who protect the realm from bad books. Uh, and in this universe, also, sorcerers are considered mostly evil. Like, sorcerers have created these grimoires, but they, you know, in history have used their powers for bad. They are necromancers. They're very, very scary to be feared. Um, and then, in the opening of the book, Elizabeth discovers an act of sabotage that releases her library's, like, most gnarly grimoire. And she tries to intervene to defeat it, but in doing so, kind of implicates herself in this big crime. And she gets taken to the capital city to, like, face trial and her escort is a sorcerer named nathaniel who she deeply fears and eventually kisses because this is why <laughs> um, and his mysterious servant who turns out to be a demon 
and is super awesome. Saul, he's like one of my, he walks around as a cat sometimes and like magical demon cats and fantasy novels are my favorite. I don't know why, but like I love them so deeply, but he chooses to be a floofy cat sometimes. Um, there's a big conspiracy centuries old. There's like summoning of magical beasties. There's lots of sword play. Also, again, I'm going to say it again. There's the kissing. Magical libraries with personalities. Like, I just loved this so much. I read it in one sitting. It's super, super fun. Great place to put all your big feelings and like escape from what's going on in your day to day. So that's Sorcery of Thorns by Margaret Rogerson. Well, I'm going to have to read that. I loved it. It's so good. <laughs> I I was also pitching my pick for this to Amanda. Yes. It's on hold in my library. I'm yes. just waiting. <laughs> yes. I picked The Affair of the Mysterious Letter by Alexis Hall, who has come up on the show before. He writes very, very steamy, like the most like five alarm steamy uh, erotica, among other things. But this is a Sherlock Holmes retelling set in a sort of like Lovecraftian world where the Sherlock Holmes character is a brown woman named Shahrazad Haas. And the Watson character is uh, Captain John Wyndham, who is like the prissiest, most mannered, uptight, amazing character. Oh, my gosh. And he's narrating the book. And, you know, so you get him like looking for lodging and and meeting, you know, Shahrazad Haas at 22 or excuse me, 221B Martyr's Walk. And she is like the classic. Holmesian, you know, she's a sociopath. She has very little regard for life and limb. She's also a sorceress of dark arts and is a drug addict and all of the things. And Wyndham is like, ooh, but he almost immediately ends up going on a case with her and their friendship gets established there. And he is narrating this story and he's so, it, it cracked me up because he's constantly like, and I won't tell you the words she used to describe such and such or like, and then I saw a lady's ankles, like so <laughs> shocking. Like, it's so funny. It's so funny. I loved it so much. And he'll periodically like be like, and then my editor said, I had to tell you this, but like, I really think it's inappropriate but my editor is insisting so blah 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 like it's there's a lot of little asides and notes to the reader and I just thought it was delightful and there's like at one point they have to punch a shark and there's like a mad god in a citadel <laughs> and somebody has to do dream magic and like all of the crazy things happen it's totally madcap told in this very prissy way it's a delightful contrast and i just cannot wait for there to be more of these books in the world like i need like 14 of these yes. at minimum i need all of them i need all of them and the framing of the book is that you know at the start that Shahrazad is gone, like presumed dead. And so there's also this mystery that you know is going to unfold over the course of more books. So I just, it's fascinating, y'all. It's so much fun and it's a total distraction. Like you will absolutely escape from the real world while reading this book. I loved it so much. And it is very queer. Uh, Wyndham is also a trans man and is like, there's a little like a little attraction to a police officer. Well, this world's version of a police officer that's very like, ooh, will they, won't they? And Shahrazad is pansexual, like trans dimensional beings slash vampires slash whatever like nbd and <laughs> nbd uh so i think you'll i think you'll dig it so again that's the affair of the mysterious letter by alexis hall i can't wait for this hole to come in oh my gosh it's so much fun it's so much fun
Okay, so our next question is from Kelly, who says, as a diehard fan of Jane Austen, I've read and reread all the novels and have recently rediscovered Lady Susan thanks to an excellent audiobook edition. I wondered if you could recommend a comp specifically with the following aspects in mind. Multiple unreliable narrators or varying knowledge and perspective among characters, developing situations, conniving behind-the-scenes action, light tone, lovely writing. I'm currently reading Good Omens, and I understand some Oscar Wilde plays have a similar vibe. What you got, Amanda? Okay, I picked the Pervian Mystery mystery series by Sujata Masi, which might seem kind of weird because like there's murder and there's not a lot of murder in Jane Austen, but it's off page. It's not it's not like violence that you're going to be really watching, but it hits all of these things that you're looking for. There are multiple unreliable unreliable narrators, obviously a developing situation or scheme. All of the behind the scenes action is conniving because it's a mystery, um, but it's a very cozy. So it is pretty light in tone, and the writing is really really nice. So the Pervian, there are two books out now. Pervian Mystery is the name of the main character. They take place in India, I think during the Edwardian period, like 1920s, um, and Pervian is the first female lawyer practicing in Bombay or not first the only female lawyer practicing in Bombay and she because it's 1922 has a lot of restraints on her ability to practice like there's she can't go before a judge um there are other things that she like can't do as a lawyer but she is super super useful to her father's practice where she works because you know India obviously is a super multicultural and varied religious country and so she uh can talk to and get involved in the lives of some of the clients that her father can't because he's a man so in the first book um she goes to help some uh, widows who are in Perda who can't leave their house and they can't interact with men who aren't related to them. And in the second book, she goes to visit uh, Indian royalty, a widow and her mother-in-law, who is also widowed, these two widows who live in this big giant palace by themselves and are like too fancy to be visited upon by normal men. So they have, they need a female lawyer. So she finds her way into all of these really complicated situations that she has to solve in a very, I don't know, like fancy way, (laughs) you know, um, (laughs) she's talking to royalty or dealing with the British government or representing really wealthy members of her community who have a lot of money at stake, hence all the murdering um, or, you know, taking over Indian statehoods. Um, There's a lot at stake and everyone she's interacting with in the same way that Jane Austen's main characters are often like women in poverty who are interacting with people who are super wealthy. That's happening here. But Pervine's not in poverty. She's just, she doesn't have a palace, you know, and she works for a living, which in and of itself is like, (gasps) gasp. Um, So there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of like social niceties disguising really, really terrible things happening in the background. Um, Witty banter. um, Not... Not a lot of romance, I wouldn't say. In the second book, there's a hint of it, but um, not at all in the first one. And in the second one, I'm, well, I don't want to spoil it. Anyway, um, so I think that these would be really great for Jane Austen comps, even with the murder. So that's the Pervine Mystery series. The first one, I don't remember what the first one is called. Widows of Malabar Hill. Thank you. By Sajata Masi. I just thanked myself for coming up with that name. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back from vacation. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's see. Well, you mentioned plays, so I just want to give a brief shout out to Much Ado About Nothing Mm -hmm. by our boy Shakespeare, because it has all of the things that you are talking about. And I do think the play is very worth reading. I will also give a pitch at this point for the 2012 remake film that was directed by Joss Whedon. I have my issues with Whedon, but I thought this was a really successful retelling and the acting i mean i don't know what i'm saying retelling they basically do the play straight language wise but it's set 
in a modern setting, like modern clothes, modern house. But they, the acting is amazing. Uh, so that is a thing you should look into. And then I wanted to recommend Longborn by Joe Baker, because this, it doesn't really have conniving per se, but this is told by the staff of the Longborn house. So like Elizabeth Bennett's maid, basically. Uh, Sarah is the main narrator. She is the housemaid uh, who is an orphan. And, you know, she gets all the worst jobs. She does the laundry. She empties, empties the chamber pots, et cetera, et cetera. But there is lots of things that go on behind the scenes. And so you see you see a little bit of the plot of Pride and Prejudice told from the servant's point of view. And like Mrs. Bennett, as you can imagine, is quite a character. Um, but there's also uh, some things going on that have nothing to do with that romance. There's a new footman arriving and you get his perspective eventually as well. And what I love about this is that it really digs into the context of the historical time period that Austin was writing in, specifically the Napoleon Wars, and you get to see a whole side of that that you just that Austin just really hints at. And so it really fleshes out the world of Jane Austen, which I think is a thing you will like. It moves very nicely. It's it is beautifully written and it's not too heavy. Like there are very deep emotional moments, but otherwise it's it is I think it like I, I have it in my head as like a really nice, enjoyable read. It wasn't too intense. And I think I just think you'll as an Austin fan, you will love getting that background sequence as well as come to love those characters in their own right. So again, that's Longborn by Joe Baker. All right. Our last question is from Kayla, who says, I'm looking for some light sci-fi slash surrealistic recommendations that will check some of the boxes. Uh, the same boxes as Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy. I toyed through all three books last summer and was obsessed and so sad when it was over and have found myself looking for something that feels similar ever since. Murakami is also one of my favorite authors, although his style is quite different from Vandermeer. I think the common denominator for me is the way that these totally out there, usually quite unsettling events take place within very real, familiar settings and often build an intensity as the story progresses. I'm not a huge fan of full-blown fantasy where the stories are set in totally foreign worlds or where the main characters are different species, etc. And I haven't read a lot of sci-fi, but I'm not really interested in distant future alien space stories, super techie intergalactic battles, or anything taking place on another planet. I'd love to find something set in either present day or near future Earth with a heavy dose of trippy, surreal weirdness. Okay, I'm going to keep going. I picked Kraken by China Mieville, mm -hmm. which has the most trippy, surreal weirdness I've ever read in my life. Ever. So it takes place in London and uh, it opens in the Natural History Museum. The main character is a guy named Billy, who's a cephalopod scientist, and he's doing a tour of the Natural History Museum. And at the end of the tour, he's supposed to show people their specimen of a giant squid. But when he's in there showing them the rare specimen of the giant squid, the thing vanishes like just disappears into thin air. And so, of course, he is immediately suspected of some kind of crime or sabotage, and he gets embroiled in this, like, thousands of years old war between different factions of supernatural entities, um, at the end game of which is, like, this squid, which is an embryonic god coming to life and destroying you know, time, the universe, and everything. So there's like the congregation of God Kraken, which are these squid worshippers who have been around since the beginning of humanity. Um, and then there's also a guy named Tattoo, who is a criminal 
I don't even like mob boss is putting it too lightly who like lives inked onto the body of another person. It's all super weird. London has um, its own like supernatural crime fighting unit called the fundamentalist and sect related crime unit. Um, there's like ancient Egyptian spirits, lots of familiars, London mancers who are these weird people who can like read the city's ruins it's so odd like china mayville's brain is super weird and then there's just hapless billy like trying to run from all these people not understanding why he's involved at all i mean he holds of course the key to everything um as you would expect and but he like i was just there when the thing disappeared i don't know what's happening why are all these people chasing me why do you have four eyes why does that guy have tentacles i don't understand what's going on um and so the london that you're in when you you know when the book opens is of course very normal and for the most part is very normal as you continue except for all of these like sex and s-e-c-t-s <laughs> and um gods and supernatural beings you like change london's underground before billy's eyes and you come to realize that the city is like so much more than this normal place that you think so yeah super weird um i loved it and then so that's kraken by china mayable I will take your Kraken by China Mabel and raise you a Rosewater by Tade Thompson. This book is definitely in that Vandermeer, Mievel, etc. wheelhouse. It's so strange. It is set in a sort of feels like it could be modern day, but really weird uh, Nigeria. And the town of Rosewater grew up around i know you didn't say you were interested in aliens on other planets but this is aliens on earth it's different i promise there's <laughs> an alien that like came to earth and made a biodome and is just kind of hanging out sort of doing nothing like doing nothing obvious but every now and then spores get released from the alien biodome and they've started to change the people surrounding rosewater and sometimes you get healed and sometimes weird things grow out of you and like you're not really sure what's going to happen but people of course are people and so they're very interested in this this whole city grows up around this biodome and the main character caro is kind of a jerk he really is you find out why but he really just just trying to look after himself and when you meet him he has the weirdest version of a bank security job i've ever read he like it is his job he's one of uh various people who have gained telepathic abilities by exposure to these spores and it's his job to produce psychic noise so that people can't steal your pin number when you go to the ATM. So he literally goes to work and sits in a room with a bunch of other psychics and telekinetics and telepathics and they read like they're literally reading the Count of Monte Cristo in their brains to cover for people who go to the ATM and are like thinking of their pin so that other telepathic like less well doers cannot steal your pin bananas and that's just like a taste of how weird this book is then you find out that caro has been is like the reluctant recruit of government agency and telepathics and psychics around him are starting to die and it seems very clear that somebody is killing them off and he's afraid that he is next and so you get his quest to not die um and you also get glimpses into how he came to be recruited for the government agency how the alien first got there what in fact is actually going on it's really weird it's really graphic and strange and there's some like body horror stuff going on but if you're used to vandermeer there is nothing in here that i don't think you've already been exposed to but it's so different because it's just it's from Toddy Thompson's brain, and Toddy Thompson's brain is really weird. It's fascinating. It's totally fascinating. And there are several female characters who I got obsessed with in the course of this book. And the second book, which is out, 
is more from their perspective, which is so exciting to me. So there's more where this is coming from. I think there's supposed to be three books in the series. The third one will be out eventually. But yeah, you're going to want to start this. So that's Rosewater by Tade Thompson. And that's our show. Wahoo! Thank you all so much for listening, as always. If you feel like leaving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, we would love that. It helps other people to find the show, and we super appreciate the feedback. Thank you to today's sponsors for making the show possible. You can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you at? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And you can find me on Twitter as Jen IRL, Jen with two N's IRL, and on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>